morning, everyone. How are you going with Lent for those that are doing Lent? For those who don't know, the period, uh, the 40, 46 day period before uh, Easter is sometimes observed as Lent and is a time that we fast, we pray, we get together. So if you uh, haven't jumped on but you want to jump on, it's not too late, you can so, do so. Um, there is um, a little bit more information about Lent just in the foyer as well. But this morning, I am really excited to go into uh, the week, the second week of our In Christ series. And last week, we started a series uh, with uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. We're supposed to be looking at the whole chunk, this big prayer um, that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 1. But last week, we looked at the first couple of verses, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And we unpack that this whole concept of being in Christ is that Christ is our representative. He is our King, and under His kingship, we have this, um, uh, we, we, we get everything that He has. That's what it means. In the Jewish mindset, the king is the representative. And if you live under this representative, whatever happens to this representative also happens to you. If they suffer, if they struggle, that's what's happening to you. That's what happened, right? When your king is sick and all of that, the, the whole nation is sick. <laughs> that's kind of the mindset behind it. But when the king is prosperous, when the king is victorious, the nation is victorious. And that's what it means to be in Christ. We are living under Christ. Christ's headship and everything that he has has been given to us and that includes every spiritual blessing. In fact, one commentator actually says that every spiritual blessing is actually kind of one big blessing, which is Christ himself, that he would give himself for us. And then we also had a look at this sense that we have been blessed, we have been chosen. This is a work that God does. This is not what we do. And it is for the point of being holy and blameless before God. This is not for us simply to just be, oh, I got all these blessings, so I get to live this happy ever after. We're not talking about fairy tale land, we're talking about real life. And the truth is, we're talking about the life that we have in Christ. And therefore, the main thing that we need to consider is that the way that we live helps us to unlock, live in the fullness and the blessings of God. Being holy and blameless before God is not legalism. It is actually how we get the most out of this life that God has given to us. And so, I didn't say this last week because I didn't know about it yet. I only discovered it this week. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, all the way to 14, which I read last week. I'm not going to read this week because it's a big chunk of scripture. Beck listened to the podcast. She was in kids last week. And she said, Nate, were you out of breath reading that passage? I was like, yes, I was out of breath. I was trying to read the whole thing really quickly. So I'm not going to do it this week. But Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is, in the Greek, one sentence. One sentence. 
It is not like how we see it in our English translations. A whole bunch of different sentences pulled together to be this one big great prayer. In the Greek, it is one sentence. And the reason why Paul decided to write this honestly clumsy, crazy sentence is because it is one thought. It is not five thoughts, it's not ten thoughts, it's not twenty thoughts, depending on how many sentences there are in there. It is one thought. This is the way that they wrote back in those days when they're wanting you to understand that this is, they didn't obey the rules of English grammar or English, yeah, grammar. I was going to say vocabulary, not vocabulary. English grammar, they didn't obey those laws. They used how they wrote as a way of conveying key thoughts. And so Paul wrote one big key thought, one big key prayer. And that's why I mentioned that every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. That is the key thought. This is what we have in Christ. And so today we will look at the next five verses, Ephesians 1, 5 to 10, and we're going to unpack that. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So remember, these are all coming back to the thought that we are found in Christ. And as we approach this particular segment in the prayer, obviously for those who know Beck and myself well, you know that this probably would, in your imagination I hope, mean something a bit more to us. Because we are adoptive parents and we have gone through the process of, uh, uh, of adopting. And um, just a few weeks ago, one of our friends who is an adoptee sent me this article that was written by an American adoptive mother. And um, she wrote this pretty long article. And some of the things that she was saying was that maybe we need to look at how we talk about adoption in the Christian world, in churches. And for her, the reason why she wrote that is that she was a biological mom of two um, kids. And then her and her husband felt led by the Lord uh, to continue to add to their family through adoption. And so they educated themselves about adoption and then they uh, had a child place with them. Now she is um, a Chinese American and they had a daughter from Taiwan placed with them and they and, and so they're a mixed family and so the two uh, biological kids are mixed but their third daughter was a Taiwanese and they chose to go down that route because they were thinking about all those different things that adoption will teach you nowadays. You need to think about cultural continuity. You need to think about you know, bringing them in a place where they're not the only person of their race, including in their family. And there have been uh, discussions about how that can be very jarring for people, etc., and all those kinds of things. And so they prepared themselves. And she wrote very honestly that she enjoyed motherhood with her two biological kids, but parenting 
an adoptive daughter was honestly one of the hardest things she's ever done and it's something that she was still coming to terms with six years after adoption. And she wrote about one of the ways that uh, the journey was unhelpful is that in Christian churches, when we talk about adoption, especially through the lens of God adopting us, we often talk about it as this one moment where everything changed and God is our hero and it's this beautiful thing where I was brought up from the dirt, from the ashes, into his family, and everything is all right now. And she said, that's not my experience. And in a Christian world, we say, look at what God did. Let's do the same. Let's go out. Let's go adopt these kids. Let's change their lives. Let's be heroes. And uh, honestly, when Beck and I were going through our adoption process and all the lessons, this was one of the things that they came out pretty strongly with in one of the first few sessions. They were like, adoption is not heroic. Adoption doesn't change things for this child immediately. In fact, there is complexity and there is a lot of grief. Yes, it can be a beautiful thing and that's why we still practice it. Some kids do need families and so we still have the adoptive system. However, if you think that you're going to come in, swoop in, save the kid and they're not going to be all right for the rest of their life, you're going to be in trouble. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is the best analogy, but it came to mind. You know when you watch a superhero movie uh, a Superman, for example, and a girl falls out of the 30th story of a building that's about to crumble and she falls, ah! and then Superman catches her and then they go off. Do you know that science has proven that when you are jumping out of a 30-story building, you gain so much speed and Superman is known as the man of steel. You're not having this nice little, oh, what a nice little bed of roses. You're going to be cut in half. And so this magic moment of salvation, when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, Superman could have killed people simply by trying to save them. And sometimes I think that's what adoption can be like. We have this well-meaning, amazing people that come in, swoop in into the situation, believing that their moment of generosity is going to change the life of this child for the rest of their life and live heavily ever after. And this uh, mum would say, guys, let's look at this. Is that what really is going on? And some of the disconnect that we need to remember is that God is God and we are not. You know, like God is all grace, all love, all wisdom. We are flawed human beings. And so if we think that we can do the job that God can, you know, we're going to, like, any biological parent even doesn't have to be an adoptive world with trauma involved in parenting. You would know that parenting sometimes gets on your last nerve, your last straw, your last, this is the last, this is the last, whatever I have. It's the last moment of my, it's the last breath, I don't know, to your last breath. Kids are difficult, wonderfully difficult. They are beautifully difficult to raise, and so that's one of the differences. But at the same time, I started looking to this because I think that sometimes in the adoptive world that we are a part of, there can almost be this pushing back against the Christian uh, theology of um, adoption. We almost then go, look, all these kids that go through adoption, they've got all this complexity. They've not been saved. And yet at the same time, the Bible does tell us that salvation has this picture of adoption. And so we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We just need to examine it a little bit deeper. 
And that's what I want to do today because I have come to discover that there are two different things that happen in adoption. One of them is accomplished immediately and one of them is for the rest of our lives. And so I think quite often we think about the immediate part as the whole picture, but there is an immediate and there is an ongoing picture of adoption. So for example, when Beck and I adopted Sam, he is now legally in our family, but there's this ongoing process every year. In fact, just in a few weeks' time, Beck and I and Sam are going to have his welcome home day. We're going to celebrate that. Some years, that day is not going to be a celebration. It's going to be a, a day of mourning. It's a day of grief. We don't know. Right now, he seems happy to be with us. Praise the Lord. High five. We're doing well. Other years, he might be like, what did you do? I don't know, we'll just how to figure it out. Sam's in this place right now where it's really funny. If he wants to talk to Beck and I talk to him, he'd be like, I'm not talking to you. You're not mummy. And it's the worst thing in the world. It's like a slap in the face. Love the kid. He's so great. I don't know why that came to mind. Is there sometimes parenting you have this, oh, he's so sweet. Yes, he is. But there's another part of him that he reserves for his parents. There's another part of all of us that we reserve for God, don't we? So adoption, as we can see, Paul talks about it. It says, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That's verse 5, Ephesians 1 verse 5. There is something that adoption accomplishes immediately, and that, it gives, that is that it gives you a legal status change immediately. I just recently read this uh, very short a biography about one of the Caesars of Rome, and his uh, nickname is Caligula. Uh, he was Gaius Caesar, and this man was an adoptee. He was not going to be next in line to be the Caesar. And so what the Caesar did, see, I don't exactly know why that was not in this particular biography, but he brought... Gaius into his family line and made him uh, the next in line to become Caesar. It was adoption that brought this boy from a place where he wasn't going to be royalty and brought him into a place of royalty. That was, and that was something that was practiced. And when Paul was writing, it's quite possible that Gaius had just been adopted. It is quite, quite, quite possible that the timing of this letter, as well as Caligula's uh, adoption, was taking place around the same time. Why did they practice it in those days? Is because of the line of inheritance. It was all about the line of inheritance. For the person that wanted to have an heir, they wanted to have an heir that was responsible, that looked like they were going to take hold of everything. Caligula, by the way, turned out to be one of the worst Caesars. He squandered his dad's wealth, his adoptive dad's wealth, in one year. It was a, 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 something like 1.7 billion, uh, uh, whatever their money was, gave it away, spent it in a year. Anyway, there was a long, another story. That guy was ridiculous. But let me tell you that what they were thinking about was that I need to have an heir that I think would be the great to take over my position, my wealth as the leader of this family, and in this case, the leader of the nation. And so they would bring a person that they thought was appropriate for that and bring that person into this line of inheritance. 
When Beck and I went through the adoption process and we had done all the transitions and all of that, we got to this final hurdle, which was the uh, uh, legal adoption hurdle. And so it wasn't a hurdle, it was a process. And we engaged lawyers that we uh, found were able to do this process. And so we called them up and we had a conversation with them. And as lawyers need to, they told us what this whole process was going to look like, what it entailed, what it would mean. And we got to this point where um, she talked about the transference of inheritance line. And it was actually quite a significant moment for me because I was sitting there and she was saying, do you understand this whole transference of the inheritance line or whatever the term was? And I was like, nope, never heard of it. And this is what she said. Well, up to this point in time, Samuel would have a claim for the inheritance under his biological family. So if um, any of his birth parents passes away, he literally has a legal claim to be one of those that inherits whatever's going on or whatever is in their will, especially if they haven't set out in their will how things are going to go. He has that claim. When any one of us are born, we have a claim to whatever inheritance our birth family has for us. That is what happens. However, through the process of adoption, not only is Samuel becoming part of our family, he is severing all ties, all legal ties, to his old family. And so now, in this process, for this few moments before they, they sever his inheritance line and he comes under our line, he has like, he's like in limbo land. So she was just saying, you know, this is the process. We will have to like cut off that inheritance line and then he'll come under your inheritance line. That process is immediate. It's a legal process and it happens immediately. What we need to understand is that it's a picture of what salvation accomplishes immediately. We need to understand that. The moment any of us are born in this world, we have an inheritance line under sin. We're going to explore this in about three or four weeks' time in a lot more depth. But you need to understand that the Bible teaches us that the moment any of us are born, we are born under sin and death. That is who we are inheriting from. And if you can imagine that, not a great inheritance. The Bible teaches us that the, 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 the wages of sin is death. We are left with destruction. We are left with a debt. We are left with this evilness that not only we commit, but takes over our lives. That's what sin is in the Bible. Sin is not just the mistakes that you commit. Sin is a problem and a corruption at the core of our being. And that's what we inherited from the moment we are born. And what Jesus has accomplished on the cross is that he's changed your legal status immediately immediately and so when it says that you are no longer under sin but under grace it is a legal term that jesus is talking about he is not saying that you're gonna have to inch and work your way out of sin he is saying i have broken the curse of sin i have broken any inheritance that you could ever get from sin so if you don't like that stay with sin please you can Amazingly, because God loves us so much, He gives us a route out, but in some strange way, He allows us to 
make that final choice to step in faith into this new inheritance that He has given to us. I think that's why Paul writes in this way. He said, "Blessed be to God." He starts this prayer with a, 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 a enunciation of praise. He's saying, "Praise be to God," because I was once under sin. I once inherited death. I once inherited everything that was dark and evil. But praise be to God. In His love, He has purposed me to receive light and life and hope and joy. I have every spiritual blessing because of my status change. This is something that we need to wrestle with. If you think that you have still got an inheritance under sin, you don't understand the power of salvation. You don't understand the process that God has gone through in bringing us away from the power of sin and into His great riches of grace. That's immediate. Sam doesn't carry his birth parents' name anymore. He doesn't. He, in fact, has a new birth certificate, even though technically we didn't birth him, but we've birthed him into our family through the process of adoption. If you don't want sin to be your inheritance, you don't have to. That is what the Bible teaches us. We have to recognize this. This is probably one of the most important things that we need to recognize. You are no longer under sin, but under grace. So every time that you are in a place where you're struggling with sin, and most of us are, we need to remember, this ain't my master. Before Christ, it was. Before Christ, I have every right to be selfish. I have every right to be self-destructive. I have every right to be prideful. I have every right to do things my own way. I have every right to take every dysfunction from my family and to live it out because that is the way of sin and that is the way of the world. But under Christ, I don't have to be that person anymore. And so there is this sense that adoption is heroic. Because it breaks the power, it breaks the legal right of where we come from. We have to see that as heroic. We cannot throw that out with the bathwater. That is a central tenet. I want you to just think about it in this way. If you, as a human being, you came across this child who was born under a family that was abusive, that was evil personified. It was dark in that family. There was always neglect. There was always abuse. There was always oppression. You, as a human being, would say, "I don't want this child to inherit this anymore." We have to. There is something in us, and probably as Christians, a part of it is that we see that God has already redeemed us. We've seen the light. We've seen life. And when we see that someone is living under darkness and is going to inherit that kind of destruction, something needs to rise up in us. It needs to rise up, church. We have not been blinded to the situations of the world, but we are called to be the light of the world. And so, when we see that situation and we see the inheritance that this child is going to have. And let me just be really clear: Sam did not come from that kind of a background. A lot of our adoptees in WA are brought in at a very early stage, where you know whatever is going on in that family. However, they've decided if they've decided that look, we don't have what it takes um, to to uh, raise this child. That's how the adoption process works. And so we don't have a lot of kids that are brought up in that kind of a situation, brought up in that brokenness. The foster system is probably a closer picture of how that situation can turns out. 
But if we can go, man, there's something that stirs in me and I need to change that situation, you can call it heroic if you want. I call it right. I call it right. And so when God views us from His vantage point as being good and pure and love, and He sees the filth of sin that covers this earth, and He sees that we are inheriting that, the Bible tells us, Ephesians 1 tells us, that in His love, according to His purpose, He rescues us out from that dirt, and He says, no longer are you meant to be oppressed, no longer are you going to be there, I'm bringing you out. We can praise Him as being our Savior. We can praise Him as being our Lord because that is exactly what He has done. He has done what is right because He sees value in us. You know, the Bible, when you read Ephesians 1 verse 5, it says, according to His purpose, right? Can we put that up, Joe? Ephesians um, 1 verse 5, it says, In love He predestined, uh, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now, it kind of sounds a bit strange to us because it sounds like God was going like, oh, need saving? All right, saved. And it sounds like it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a cold process. It sounds like it's a bit of a legal process. Now, the word purpose uh, is translated purpose. In the Greek, is this word eudokia, E-U-D-O-K-I-A, eudokia. And it means in his pleasure good pleasure. And so some translations would say, according to his good pleasure. And again, it kind of probably brings up the wrong kind of picture. Oh, God is like, oh, I am so pleasured that I get to be Savior. No, it says that when he saw us with his great love, it, it pleasured, it brought him great joy to bring you into his family. What does this mean? He saw worth in you even when there was no worth he saw that he would be filled with joy to bring you into his family the first day beck and i met sam we didn't have one of those hollywood i didn't have that emotional reaction partly because it's kind of a shock to see a human being that's going to be like, hey, in a couple of weeks, everything that this kid needs, every kid that this kid does is your responsibility. So it's a bit like, oh, okay. How many times a day does he poop? <laughs> but what I would say is this. When I saw Sam's face, and already at four months of age, he already had this big smile. He already knew how to look at people and interact with us, and, and he just was probably the cutest boy that we've ever seen. There was something in me that said, I'm going to raise this boy up to the best of my ability. This boy is going to bring me great joy to see him succeed in life. And I know every parent probably has some kind of moment where you look at your kid and you go, kid, you are going to be the best because I'm going to give you my best. And I don't know my best is enough, and God grace me if it's not enough, but God let this kid be raised to be the best. I think that that's how God sees you. I think that's how God sees every one of us. When he saw you, he saw worth, he saw a future, he saw value, and it brought him great pleasure for him to bring you into his family and to lavish you with every good blessing and that took place immediately 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 
And this is where there is a little bit of, if you will, maybe pushback against how we talk about this, because sometimes in the process of, of adoption, there is this transitioning. There is this change where, where this child had this attachment, had this sense of this is my family, and that needs to transfer to the new family. It's a process that includes a lot of grief and a lot of uh, difficulty, and I believe that the Bible describes this as well. Because once it says that He predestined us uh, for adoption, etc., and it says... The next verse, in verse 7, in him, this is the next line, remember they're, all, they're not meant to be different points, they're the same point, this is what we're getting. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. When we read this in um, our English language, the redemption and the forgiveness, we read it in the past tense. Am I right? Or we've already received redemption and we've already received forgiveness. In the Greek, it doesn't have a past tense. They are ongoing processes that God works through us. And in fact, one commentator, I believe, rightly points out that the language of redemption and forgiveness and, and adoption is the language of the Exodus found in the Old Testament. It is how God brought Israel out of slavery. And by the way, slavery in the New Testament is often to sin. And so the slavery in Egypt is a picture of us in sin. What did God do? He did two key things. He broke the power of Egypt over Israel, and then he brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. There were two processes here, not just one. And that's the problem because quite often we think that adoption is just one process, it's the saving process. It's not the saving process alone, it's the saving process and the raising process. It's the saving process and the raising process. Some of us have forgotten that what we have in God is not just the saving process, it's the raising process. Some of us have neglected the raising process because we just think that we've got everything already, so I must be perfect the way I am. No, you've been saved from slavery. Now you go through the wilderness so that you get the fullness of the promised land. And when you read through the Old Testament and you're reading about the Israelites going through the wilderness, it's not a pretty picture. Sometimes it's terrible. Why? Because there is still this process of transition. The redemption is not a one-moment thing. God didn't cash in a coupon for your life. By redeeming you, He is raising you. He's saying, I'm going to take the good in your life and bring you up, and I'm going to forgive. I'm going to take out the things in your life that is still evil. There is this, common, uh, there's this line that is often said that why did Israel need to go through the wilderness is because God brought them out of Egypt, but He still needed to bring Egypt out of them. So God saved us from sin, and God is still bringing sin out of us. And that's a process of redemption, and that's a process of forgiveness. It's a process that Beck and I are going through with Sam. There's still some days that he's still wondering whether we're going to be there for him. There's some days that he wonders whether we are truly going to be able to give him all that he needs. And sometimes you go, but you've already done that. It's like, yeah, you're an adult. You kind of know how life works. He's a four-year-old. He's wondering whether going to kindy would mean that we're going to just leave him there. And you already know because some biological kids do the same thing. It's this process of raising. It's this process of bringing in. It's this process of making him more and more our child. So God doesn't talk about adoption as a one moment. He's redeemed a coupon. 
He's released you from evil and sin. So off you go. He's redeemed you, and now he's raising you. Why do we need the great and many promises to help us live holy and blameless lives? Is because he has redeemed us, and he's also raising us. He is bringing us up. There is this ongoing process that God is going with you. If you think that there's still sin in you, good on you. You have recognized that there's still a way to go. It doesn't make you unredeemed. It doesn't make you still in sin. What I will say is if there is this desire in you, God, why am I still struggling with this? It's because you're no longer under the slavery of the master of sin. If you're still under sin as your master, you wouldn't even think about leaving. I've spoken to many people who are not Christian, have not got this concept of sin, uh, um, and, and they've got no problem with it. It's like, what's wrong with my life? This is fine. This is how it's meant to be. Hollywood does this terribly well. Where it talks about, when was the last time you, 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 you had casual sex? Oh, three months ago. Three months ago. Yes, it should be the fact that it's, it's warped it. It's like sin is okay. Sin is not okay. You don't play with sin. The, pr- the point is that while we struggle, but we have a heart that already understands, I'm under a new inheritance, that's a good thing. The status change has already taken place. You're just being raised. Sam's status change has happened, but he's still a four-year-old. He's not become the four, as in the P-H-O-R, that we intend him to be. That we see in him his ability to connect with other people, the joy that he can bring to any room. Those are things that are still in infant form. It would be wrong of us to think that we've done our duty at this point in time. And it would be wrong of God to think that the moment that he died on the cross, he could leave you alone. It's not what's happening, guys. He's changed your status and he continues on your journey. That's what is going on. The rest of this passage says he lavished, he lavishes his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. He understands when it says that God is wisdom, it doesn't mean that, that, that he's like this sage on the top of a mountain. It means that he knows how to do life. Yes. He knows how your life works. He knows what you need. He knows the moments of your insecurity. He knows the moments of your failure and your weakness. And yet he continues to lavish his grace upon you. And then it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This is a term that comes up a lot in the New Testament in Paul's writing, the mystery of God's will. What's the mystery of God's will? Well, this is the next series that we're going to be going into. See, God's will is that his salvation didn't take place with a strong arm, but with humility upon a cross. See, when we think about this whole idea of a heroic God, we think about a God who's strong and mighty, maybe like a Zeus, throw lightning bolts, lightning bolts. There are still people that think, like, oh, I'm a sinner. If I go into the church, lightning will hit me. I'm like, like, where do you get that picture of God from? God's not Zeus. Wrong God. You need to go to Rome to find lightning bolt God. How God saved us wasn't by strong arming us. He came to us by humiliating himself to the point of the cross. 
And if that graciousness and the humility of God is what brought about our salvation, how much more will He continue in that softness, that gentleness, and that grace that He's already shown? See, we don't have a shepherd who strikes us because we're going the wrong way. We have a good shepherd who leads us beside still waters, a shepherd who brings us to rest, a shepherd who knows what we need. The mystery of God's will is that it was completely opposite to what anyone thought a God should be like. And to some extent, I think sometimes we get so blasé, so used to talking about God of grace that we don't actually truly understand what it means. There's this brokenness inside of us that still wonders if God truly is big enough for us. So the mystery of His will still stands today. Sometimes we, I mean, some of you might be sitting here going like, why would God choose me? I like, Nate, that you say that God saw value in me, but I still don't see it. The mystery of His will. Shall we chalk it down to that? Sometimes I look at you and I wonder, yeah, I don't know why God, no, sorry. (laughs) I look at myself. I'm standing on a stage talking to people, having a position in, in, um, and the church will, and getting to do the things I am, it's like, God chose me. I don't have to worry about that. It is a mystery, but it has taken place. It is a mystery, and it has been accomplished. The mystery doesn't take away the accomplishment of what God has done, but it remains for us to dive deeper, to understand the mystery and the depths of God's love and God's grace, and that's what we as Christians are meant to be doing. And as part of it, what we need to understand is that the mystery of God's will is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. It's a universal mission that we also get to be a part of. It's not an individual mission. God didn't choose you full stop. That's a selfish mindset that is actually extremely broken. If you think that grace is just for you, you're still thinking in the sinful terms. You're still thinking in selfish terms. Yes, God has saved you, but He's also saved all of us. And as a part of it, I like what one commentator says, as part of it, we are all saved and we are all part of God's family and we all get to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, which is a term that is used often in the Bible that we don't use anymore because it's gotten a bit weird. But I read this article in, in preparing for this message and hear the heart behind this. There was this lady who was writing about how she came from a place of brokenness, a place of not knowing her value, not knowing her place, not knowing whether she fit in with God's family. She comes in and the pastor comes in and says, hey sister, good to see you today. She said she fell down weeping in that moment because she found a place. So hear this heart. This is not about using terms for the sake of using terms. But this is what God has saved us into. We, we, when we're not living for ourselves, we're not like, I'm, I'm all right. But that person, they've got stuff that they need to deal with with God. Yeah, well, you know what? That's your sister. That's your brother. That's a person who's coming to the family needing both the redemption and the forgiveness, the raising of God. They've just realized that they have been saved and there's a process to go. We need to learn how to deal with that. We need to learn how to live with that. We need to learn how to showcase that as part of God's family. 
Why is that important? It's because it's his family. That's what he tells us. Do not neglect to encourage each other as long as today is called today. That's what the Bible tells us. Do you encourage someone every day? That's what his family is meant to be like. Why do you think Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, you have love for one another? It's because we're not just meant to be showing God, God loves me so much. But is that look at what he's redeemed in us. Sinfulness will never allow us to be a family. Sinfulness will never allow us to love each other properly and truly and fully. But by God's grace, that's something that he does for us. There's one final quote that I want to read today because I think it truly fits in with this. Mike Emlett, he writes this, he says, Our ongoing struggle with suffering or with sin must be understood in this basic context of our new identity as children of the living God. We are saints who suffer. We are saints who sin, but we are saints nonetheless at our core. How many of us struggle with that identity of saint? And I think it's actually a necessary struggle for us to look at that term and go, really? What does that mean? How do I sit with that? But last week I was talking about how so many of us are trying to identify who we are. This is how Christ identifies us. Saint. You're a sinner no longer, you're a saint. You're a sinner no longer, you're a saint. In some ways, I think that's part of identity. I hear lots of parents, I haven't done that yet because Sam doesn't do sport or a lot of academia yet. He's done five days of kindy. But I do want to say to him, that's not how we do things around here. This is who you are. You tell the truth. You speak love. You speak grace. You care for others. You share. Because that's who you are. In the same way God's saying, that's who you are. Yeah, 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 you failed. I get that. You need a time out, time in. Whatever it is. But we're past that. This is who you are. This is how you love. This is how you live. Come on, come on, we are people of God. That's why we are doing Lent, because we're remembering who we are, what Jesus has done. That's why we read the Word, because this is His Word to His people. I am His son. I need to know what Dad says. I know sometimes my son doesn't really like to know what Dad says, but I also know how important it is that he knows what I'm saying. So we sometimes need to grow up. The Bible wasn't written for babies. It was written for those who are growing up. Honestly, that's part of it. The NIV version I'm holding in my hands was written for eight years old and up. Yeah. So if you're struggling to read this, read some more. Just keep going. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. Because this says who you are. This is how he says, this is your identity in me. And, and, and please hear this. This is not about your identity because you're so precious. This is about our identity because we're all precious to God. But this is wonderful, isn't it? I just want to hammer home one last time. Your status has changed and God's raising you. You have salvation and now you're growing up in Him. That's all of us. That's our process. And that's why Christianity requires us 
to reflect and to be humble. That's why we fast, because we remember this is what God is saying about us. You know, I, I'm not sure whether there, uh, there's anyone that really feels like in this moment you want prayer. Honestly, I think this is more about us in the everyday. On the Monday, on the Tuesday, on the Wednesday, something happened. You know, this person said this about me or the situation's gone on. And we forget who we are in Christ. It's in those moments that I hope that these words ring out. That moment of temptation, that moment of failure. I hope that this, that's when this message rings out. Come on, I'm a saint. God saved me and he's brought me into his family. So can I this morning just pray for you, pray for all of us. If you do want prayer, that's always available. You can come on forward and we'll pray for you. But can we just stand? Dear Jesus, I thank you that in your love, you've adopted us and brought us into your family. I thank you that according to your good pleasure, you have changed our status. And I thank you in that same way, according to your good pleasure, you continue to journey with us, you continue to raise us, you've not left us behind, you're working things out. We pray for your ongoing redemption. We thank you for the promise in your word that he who has begun a good work in us will continue to the day of Jesus Christ. We know that we are not a finished product. We know that our status has changed, but we know that there's still a journey to go. And I pray that you lavish us with your grace as you have promised in your word. And I pray that when we forget, I pray that you remind us. I pray that when we fail, that your grace is still sufficient for us. When we are weak, we thank you that your power is made perfect in that moment in us. You're still at work. You've not given up on us. You're still going. I pray that you help us to live out the way that you have called us to live. I pray to God that we would be a gracious, loving people as you are a gracious, loving God. And I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.